Hi everyone, my name is Ian McLaughlin, and I'm a PhD student in neuroscience studying the neuronal circuitry of emotion and addiction. And I'm Bo, Ian's partner in crime in this dynamic podcast duo. <laughs> and welcome to part two on dreams. The last time we chatted about dreams, we focused on theories of why and how we dream. One of those things though that stuck out to me that I don't think we directly discussed is why is it that sometimes when we're dreaming, the dream can be totally crazy and we just kind of accept it. But then other times we recognize that something strange just happened and then we kind of realize that we're asleep and dreaming. Right, yeah, I think of it as like an invasion of incredulity because normally we're entirely credulous. We just totally accept whatever the internally generated virtual reality is delivering to us. Kind of like the people in the movie The Matrix who are stuck in the Matrix, right? And they've never seen the real world. This moment where you become aware that you're dreaming is the first step in lucid dreaming, by the way. Right, that makes sense. It's like a part of the dream that doesn't pass the smell test. Right, exactly. I remember one of the very few times that's ever happened to me. I was dreaming that I was swimming in a swimming pool, right? Nothing strange there. But then I dove down into the deep end and I just kind of hovered in the middle of the depth. I ended up hanging out in the middle for a while, like much longer than I ever would normally. And I kind of started to realize that I should be drowning, but I still didn't start swimming to the surface. And I started to panic, right? Like full blown panic. And one of my friend's older brothers used to like hold us underwater. Wow, super nice guy. Yeah, he was a charmer. But so I felt the feelings of being so short of breath that I started seeing the edges of my vision tunnel away, you know? And that's literally what I was feeling in this dream. Then, finally, out of desperation, I take a huge gulping breath of water, right? But I don't feel the water feel my lungs, or at least I don't feel what I'd assume that it'd feel like. And I quickly realize that I can breathe underwater, and quickly thereafter realize that I was dreaming. This kind of sounds like my worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of was. It started out as a nightmare. So it almost seems like it's required that there's this really alarming experience to wake you up to how crazy the situation is, like you're about to die. But there's no rational reason for you to be in this situation. You could just swim up to the surface. Yeah, I think there definitely could be something to that. Like I could totally speculate that there was some significant fight or flight type signaling that would normally prompt survival behaviors almost as a reflex when, when you're awake, but since I was sleeping, this just wasn't kicking in. And perhaps it was just the volume of that familiar signal of like, oh man, oh man, oh man, oh man, I'm about to die. You know, that surpassed a threshold to recruit activity in prefrontal structures that enabled me to criticize this situation and be like, this is a totally ridiculous situation, right? Oh, and now I can breathe underwater? Please. Oh wait, I must be dreaming. But of course you can't prove that that's the case. Right, I most definitely cannot prove that that's what happened. But there's some research that attempts to confront the flip side of that kind of experience, the wacky dreams that just don't seem to surprise us. Right, so why aren't we normally surprised in our dreams? We talked a bit about the differences in consciousness during sleep and during waking states, and you said that we are singularly minded while we sleep. That's right, and uh, there are theories that attempt to explain why this is the case. Keep in mind that in the brain, form follows function. For neurons in one area to influence those in another, they need to be physiologically circuited via synaptic connection. So let's take vision as an example. Imagine you're in a dark, silent room with a spotlight focused on a single red rose hung from the ceiling with some like translucent fishing line. There's nothing remarkable about this room except for the complete exclusion of all other sensory stimuli. All that your brain is aware of in this moment is this beautiful red rose with a healthy green stem and leaves. 
Is the rose right side up or upside down? <laughs> it's right side up. Okay, got it. Okay, at that moment that you're looking at this hovering rose, there are little proteins in your retina that are literally twisting and turning when they encounter a photon. They change shape. And this results in a signal called an action potential, or what most people might call an impulse, being generated that then travels down a collection of axons that are kind of similar to power lines. These power lines allow a bunch of structures in the brain, all of which are connected to each other via synapses to communicate with each other. A signal is generated in the eye, travels down the power lines to another checkpoint in the middle of the brain, and then new signals are generated to eventually land in the occipital lobe at the very back of the brain where the characteristics of the visual field are decoded. Different areas of the occipital lobe will do different types of decoding. One layer will decipher the fact that the rose is red and not any other color. Another that the stem and the leaves are green. Another that the petals of the rose are rounded. Another that the thorns are not. This whole process depends upon those first photoreceptors in the retina being tickled by the splash of photons that first hit the rose, bounced off, and splashed up against your photoreceptors in that rose-shaped pattern on your retina. Well, in a dream, you can experience this very situation. Your dream self can see a rose in this quiet, empty room. Of course, one important thing is missing. There are no photons tickling your photoreceptors. There can, however, be activity in the occipital lobe independent of any sensory stimuli, those photons. Neurons in the occipital lobe can be activated by something else, something that's internally generated. The internally generated reality. Yeah, exactly. When you're awake, your brain has access to this sensory cascade of signaling. It has access to information about its surroundings. This access is largely revoked during sleep. So one theory is that ascending signals from the brainstem form what are basically inbuilt predictions of time and space. Early in life, these predictions have little experience to be based upon. But as we gain more and more experience, these predictions are refined to more and more accurately reflect reality. So I was right about the matrix metaphor. It's a totally simulated reality. Yeah, that's basically one of Hobson's theories, a major guy in sleep and dream research named Alan Hobson. He argues that the activity in REM sleep basically generates a virtual world, a model with an imaginary agent, what Morpheus in the matrix would call your residual self-image. In simpler animals, much simpler processes comprise the residual self-image, right? Hunting prey, caring for young, defending itself from predators and then a simpler repertoire of emotions like positive and negative emotional states. In us, that's exactly how the activity likely begins when we're children. Then, as we collect experiences while we grow, and perhaps more importantly, as the rest of our brain finishes growing, that internally generated virtual world becomes more and more similar to the real world. Maybe that might explain why we sometimes dream about a super boring day at work. Since our work can get repetitive sometimes, I'd imagine that the repetition is reflected in the brain, right? Like if we have similar brain activity every single day, the internal reality generator might come to reflect that. That's exactly what this theory would suggest, yeah. Kind of like how running water will start to shape the rocks over which it flows, right? If water keeps running over an area for years and years, the rocks will eventually start to form a groove. And if the water keeps flowing, then you'll start to see that divot grow deeper and deeper. Then you get the Grand Canyon. Yeah, right, exactly. Repetitive experiences will have a similar kind of effect on the architecture of the brain. New connections, or synapses, will be formed as you learn to do your job, right? And those connections will be strengthened over time. Many old connections will start to erode away, you know, due to disuse. So when this brainstem-based internal reality generator comes online, 
That's become the infrastructure at its disposal. So this all sounds like it supports the theory that the brain is basically rehearsing to improve its performance for the next day. Like our internal reality generator has learned more and more about reality, so it gets refined over time to better prepare our waking consciousness for what's most likely to happen when we wake up. Yeah, I mean, I think that can be one byproduct of this automatic system. Like one of the things that Hobson and then his co-author, uh, Carl Friston, proposed to explain a role of the circuit activity that we see during sleep is what they call free energy minimization. I'm definitely familiar with free energy. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I was only familiar with it via physics, right, before this literature review for dreams. But, but what comes to mind when I say that for you? Everything in the universe basically wants to reach its lowest energy state. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, so, so Friston has argued that biological systems, in general, operate to reduce the natural tendency towards disorder by manipulating their environments to minimize unexpected events, or, or what you know, they would call surprise, what everybody would call surprise. And they sort of define free energy as surprise. And at the level of the brain and consciousness, they say that this surprise is basically just unexpected sensory experiences. They also suggest that the average of surprise over time is entropy. And so minimizing surprise allows organisms to resist the second law of thermodynamics. Please, please, allow the material scientists to explain the second law of thermodynamics. <laughs> okay, yeah, by all means. <laughs> all right, so basically, for my dear neuroscience friend here, <laughs> The second law of thermodynamics basically states that entropy, which is uh, kind of considered to be disorder, uh, will always increase with time. Right, exactly. And by operating to minimize this entropy, by minimizing surprises, you know, at the level of the nervous system, organisms can make a fundamentally unpredictable universe more predictable. Unexpected events will always occur, so our nervous system will act to minimize the frequency of these unexpected events by generating automatic activity based on what the nervous system has experienced in the past as a product of experience. Unexpected events will always occur, right? Like, no matter what. It's a law of nature. And so our nervous system will automatically adapt to reduce the likelihood that surprise will continue to occur, right? Basically, by learning from experience, the nervous system reduces the likelihood of surprise. Like when a kid touches a hot stove burner for the first time, they would be surprised at how painful it is. Yeah, that's exactly what we're talking about. Their brain couldn't possibly predict that touching the glowing red stove burner was gonna damage the, its body, right? That just wasn't part of its internally generated reality because the architecture that connects either like coiled red metal things or like little dancing orange triangles, like the flames of a gas burner, with the most intense heat they've ever experienced. It just simply hasn't been built yet. Yeah, or even when things feel warm from far away, as you get closer, that warmth will increase and eventually do damage to the body. Yeah, all those connections between incoming sensory information are still being formed when we're very young. It's these exact experiences that sculpt that prediction architecture. Those scripts that the brain has at its disposal to develop a more thorough grasp of what's going on around it. Right. So basically, it's like everyone is learning the laws of physics. You know, it's, <laughs> these experiencers are contributing to this bank of knowledge that stores the most likely outcomes from various sensory events. And the combination of all these experiences allow the brain to construct a more realistic virtual representation of reality and cause and effect. Right. And so from the perspective of Friston and Hobson, minimizing free energy suppresses prediction error. Or by minimizing free energy, we 
reduce how much a given event deviates from what our brain predicted was about to happen. This very dynamic, which is basically just error correction, is really at the center of how the brain learns over time. It makes predictions and learns from how off those predictions were. Think of throwing darts. Take a guess, Ian. Do you think I'm really good at throwing darts? <laughs> or not so good at throwing darts? Uh, I'm guessing that you're probably pretty good. I don't know. I've played darts like twice in my life. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm terrible, uh, particularly if I've had like a couple of drinks. But what happens, right? You throw a dart, and if you're a novice like me, it lands wildly off target, right? Maybe missing the target altogether, like if you're me. <laughs> and then you start throwing, you start doing some broad adjustments, right? Less force, angled more to the right or to the left, and on and on you go, right? Correcting for those errors. The same thing goes on at essentially all levels of the brain. And this has some interesting implications for conditions like addiction or obsessive compulsive disorder, right? But that's a conversation for another time. But for me, if I've had a couple of drinks, I would probably get better at darts. Yeah, well, let's test that out. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, in the sense like you start, you stop thinking so much. So, you know, I don't know, consciously about it. And you just sort of let your body's understanding of physics take over. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're just, you're altering sort of excitatory and inhibitory signaling. And in some cases it can enhance, you know, uh, performance, but there's definitely a point of diminishing returns, right? <laughs> Where if you continue drinking, you're not going to get better at throwing darts, you know? Or you're just going to think that you get better. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's exactly right. Okay, then let's talk a bit about what's actually going on in this brainstem base generator. We talked about the pawns last time. Uh, is that basically where this activity emerges from? Well, I suspect most dream researchers would probably point to a particular circuit called the PGO system. The POGO system. <laughs> I hope that dream researchers really call it that. I mean, like, I doubt they do, but they obviously really should. So what is this PGO or maybe POGO system? It's an abbreviation for the Ponto Geniculo Occipital System. And believe it or not... So it totally could be the Pogo system. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it totally should be, right? <laughs> but believe it or not, Ponto Geniculo Occipital System, that is another abbreviation for the Pons Lateral Geniculate Nucleus and Occipital Cortex System. And this circuit exhibits increased waves of activity leading up to and just before REM sleep. An abbreviation of an abbreviation. Yeah, or, or I guess it's like an initialism for an abbreviation. But if we're calling it POGO, like we very obviously should be, isn't it an acronym? Yeah, I suppose you're probably right on that. Well, this conversation just descended into intense dorkiness. <laughs> well, I, I guess this is kind of a podcast by dorks for dorks. BDFD. I like it. Uh, but I think we need to come up with a better acronym to describe this, though. By do photo. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> does, does material science have a bunch of like tongue twisters like uh, that too, like the PGO system? No, we don't. We don't purposely try to make things more <laughs> difficult for ourselves. Right. Yeah. It's just the uh, the neuroscientists that are, uh, I guess, sadists. <laughs> Endoplasmic reticulum. <laughs> That's not that bad. Yeah. Well, I, I guess. But I mean, I, I think ponto geniculo occipital. It's that's pretty effete. That's pretty needlessly, uh, yeah. Yeah, the medial raphade nucleus. <laughs> That's not so bad either. <laughs> <laughs> okay, getting back on topic here. So what do these PGO waves do? Right, so PGO waves are like large signals that emerge from the pons in the brainstem, right, the P in PGO, and then travel to the lateral geniculate body in the thalamus, which is sort of like 
the, the center of the brain, the G in PGO, and then to the occipital cortex, right, the O. And this is a huge can of worms with a ton of research. But suffice it to say that these are like waves of activity that emerge from the brainstem and influence the activities of a variety of uh, structures in the brain involved in sensory perception. And when you say waves, I assume you mean like repetitive cycles of activation and inactivation? Yep, that's exactly right. Okay, so do we know what causes them to begin? Like, I get that these are basically waves of activity that begin in the brainstem and basically move upwards and onwards but what causes them to begin in the first place? That's a great question. Um, and I haven't come across any explanations of what specifically initiates these waves that seem to be central to REM sleep and dreaming, but research suggests that PGO waves seem to deliver information about eye movement during waking states and during REM sleep. And given that this system becomes active while asleep in the absence of visual information it typically receives from eyes when awake, Researchers suggest that this is evidence that brain circuitry is indeed generating its own internal visual perceptions. Ooh, that's pretty cool. So this is basically a system that's active during both waking and sleeping states. Yeah, that seems to be the case. And a behavioral observation is that high levels of unpredicted stimuli, right, like surprise, during waking hours are associated with significant increases of PGO wave activity. And in absence of anything unpredictable during waking hours, like, like you know, experiencing very repetitive stimuli, doesn't have the same effect. Okay, so just clarify for me. Do the PGO waves cause the feeling of surprise or is it just you feel surprised then you get the PGO waves? It's an interesting question, right? It, it, we don't necessarily know which causes which, but I think the evidence would seem to suggest that more surprise during the previous day results in greater frequencies or greater um, signals of PGO waves. So in other words, more surprise equals more PGO wave activity. But it's correlative, not causative at this, well, yeah, at that, this point? That's a great point. Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem to be correlative, right? Um, so I, I'm not aware of any studies that like, you know, can identify a particular mechanism that links surprise or novelty to increase PGO waves, but there's a strong correlation. So there, there is a relationship there. And some old school experiments observed that very relationship, that correlation. And Hobson argues, given this and other more recent research, that the PGO system and REM sleep as a result becomes active to basically reduce how novel a given stimulus might be in the future. It's like the brain is getting used to the activity that was occurring while awake that was associated with surprise. So if you won the lottery, mm -hmm. and it's a big surprise, does that mean the next time that you win the lottery, it's not as much of a surprise? <laughs> I keep winning the lottery. <laughs> it's so boring. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you know, that's a very specific situation. But yeah, like a very significantly surprising event would be correlated with, you know, increased PGO wave activity. But yeah, so, I mean, it's sort of intuitive, right? You have an experience for the first time in your life. It's very surprising. It's very novel. If you have that same exact experience, even if it's like skydiving or bungee jumping, Right, something very arousing. The more you do it, the less novel it becomes, the less surprising it becomes, despite the fact that it's still a profoundly activating stimulus. Like, you know, professional skydivers, they're not as amazed, you know, or, or they're not as surprised or aroused by the experience. Not as much as like I would be since I've never gone skydiving. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because their brain has become accustomed to this intensely arousing um, experience. Okay, it sounds like these PGO waves act to basically reduce this dream concept of free energy, right? Or help the organism to avoid entropy. Yeah, that's kind of Hobson and Friston's argument. The only thing that the brain can do to reduce this free energy or reduce the error of its predictions 
is to alter its internal states, right? To re-sculpt its own architecture. Okay, so that's a pretty high level. What about like molecular causes of these waves of activity? Well, it turns out that we can induce PGO waves by stimulating acetylcholine-sensitive neurons in the ponds, in the brainstem and reducing the activity of serotonin-producing neurons in the brainstem as well, right, in an area called the Raffae nucleus. Doing so tends to unleash even more PGO waves. So in other words, acetylcholine in the brainstem seems to activate these PGO waves, while serotonin seems to put the brakes on them? Yeah, that's the model that's been suggested, that basically acetylcholine enhances PGO wave activity, while the family of neurotransmitters to which serotonin belongs, they're called amines, they inhibit them. So some people like to consider serotonin as like a happy, I don't know, brain thing. <laughs> yeah, I read that paper. <laughs> but people also dislike surprise in general. Mm-hmm. So is that actually tied together that sero- we like serotonin because mm-hmm. it puts the brakes on the PGOs? Oh, and I see, right. Both things are kind of correlated with feeling happier, like an ignorance is bliss type of thing. Right, so this is definitely a topic for a future podcast, but it is inaccurate to suggest that any one neurotransmitter is associated with any one emotional state. So serotonin in one area of the brain can induce a positive emotional state, but in in another part of the brain, it can do the exact opposite. So it's not like because serotonin tends to inhibit these PGO waves, they would be associated with, you know, pleasure at less um, unpredictability. Right. I mean, it's an interesting correlation there, but but, um, you know, serotonin in and of itself is not rewarding or or happy. All right. So that's all about PGO slash should be pogo waves. (laughs) Is there other brain activity that underlies dreaming? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure there's plenty of signaling that scientists just haven't quite identified yet. But another circuit that's often discussed in dream research is called the default mode network. And so this is a circuit of brain regions that becomes active when you're just sort of sitting in a restful state. It's associated with mind wandering and daydreaming. Which I do a lot. Right. So when I'm zoning out instead of doing what I'm supposed to be working on, my default mode network is to blame. (laughs) Well, sort of, I suppose. It's at least part of what's active, at least when you're zoning out. And research into this broad circuit touches many aspects of neuroscience because it involves so many widely interconnected anatomical structures, spanning from frontal areas of the brain, like the prefrontal cortex, to more temporal areas. Part of what seems to happen as our brain develops, as we age from childhood to adulthood, is that the various structures in this network become more strongly interconnected. Okay, so this network of brain structures is active when we're daydreaming. Is it also active during regular dreaming? It's kind of funny to read some of the research by scientists that are trying to define what exactly is going on during dreaming and comparing that to daydreaming. It's harder than it might seem it ought to be. How so? Well, in the last episode, we sort of danced around the fact that there's no solid definition of what a dream even is. We compared it to psychosis, uh, with which dreaming shares many features. But of course, it's clearly not the same thing. Right. I think one of the researchers said that it's the closest to psychosis most of us who aren't psychotic will ever get. Exactly. And, well, I think the best definition of dreaming that I've seen is from a paper by William Domhoff and Kieran Fox in 2015. And they say it's an involuntary subset of consciousness that involves imaginatively placing oneself in a hypothetical scenario and exploring possible outcomes. Okay, so you're not choosing for this to happen, and you're imagining possible scenarios. 
Right, but you'll notice, right, if you read between the lines, this decouples dreaming from sleep. This can technically happen while you're awake. So then, dreaming is kind of like this simulation where a person's imaginings are fully enacted and dramatized, involving the dreamer as either an observer or a participant, and usually includes at least one other character, be it a person or otherwise. It usually involves some kind of projected social interactions that distinguish dreaming, whether while awake or asleep, from other kinds of thought, and therefore, brain activity. So that happens with daydreaming and sleep dreaming. But if one of the hallmarks of dreaming is that it's involuntary and so immersive, how does it end up being different from like a super intense hallucination or psychosis? It's actually not entirely easy to make the distinction. Oliver Sacks, a famous neurologist and neuroscientist who passed away recently, would ask his schizophrenic patients about their dreams. And they'd respond by saying that their hallucinations while waking are just fundamentally different fundamentally unlike their dreams. Did they describe how? They'd say that their hallucinations were most frequently auditory in nature, like through sound. And there are typically persecutory figures that were invading their thoughts, sometimes issuing commands. Their visual hallucinations tended to be repetitive and simple. That sounds disturbing and menacing. Right, yeah, exactly. Very anxiety-provoking and difficult to manage. Dreams, on the other hand, were described as something that is perhaps more familiar to most of us. They were embodied simulations, right? Like we've been talking about. That included characters involved in activities and interactions occurring in a more thorough simulation of a social world. Yeah, like what we've been talking about, the matrix. Right. Okay, so how does this tie the default mode network into dreaming? So the default mode network has been studied for a very long time now. And just for a bit of context, some of the structures that are included might sound familiar to some people. We're talking about the medial prefrontal cortex, the medial temporal lobe, the temporoparietal junction, and the posterior cingulate. Those are just some of them. And it's typically been studied by cognitive neuroscientists focused on social interaction, neural development, and psychiatric conditions. Like there are papers that evaluate differences in the default mode network in people diagnosed with ADHD and people without, or autism, or schizophrenia. And, and frankly, these papers basically like always find some alteration because the default mode network is probably involved in basically everything in one way or another. Everything? <laughs> okay, I I'm exaggerating. But it's a very important central circuit, is the point I'm trying to make. But this does bring up actually a bit of criticism of the default mode network. Some researchers argue that it might not even really exist, that it might just be an artifact that arises due to the way we measure brain activity. And while this criticism is still being investigated, most cognitive neuroscientists seem really quite confident that it does exist. Okay, so back to dreaming. Yes, okay, so, so the data suggest that different components of the default mode network support different aspects of thought, like thinking about future behaviors versus present behaviors, or having the mind wander versus focus on a given goal-directed task. In other words, activity in different substructures within this network of brain regions will bias your behavior and cognition towards focus or mind wandering, thinking about the future or thinking about the present, and so on. And dreaming seems to be associated with increased activity in those substructures that subserve mind wandering, or in other words, promote mind wandering. For example, the medial prefrontal cortex, medial temporal lobe, and caudate appear to be more active in REM sleep relative to being awake and restful. And conversely, other prefrontal structures like the orbital frontal cortex appear less active during REM sleep compared to restful waking. In other words, different components of this circuit become more or less active in REM sleep versus waking. And there's also a different body of research involving lesions of brain regions. Like damaged brain areas, which I imagine just removes a certain aspect of a circuit, like a certain signal that's usually there, right? Yeah, exactly. It turns out that if various areas that don't seem to be active during REM, like the lateral prefrontal cortex, uh, are lesioned, dreaming doesn't really seem to be affected. However, lesions in areas that do exhibit some activity during REM sleep 
as well as during waking life, like, for example, the secondary visual cortex, which, as the name suggests, participates in generating visual imagery, lesioning this area leads to a loss of visual experiences during both waking and dreaming. And finally, if the medial prefrontal cortex, or an area in between the temporal and parietal lobes, are lesioned, dreaming seems to be lost entirely. Interestingly, though, it's only large lesions to the medial prefrontal cortex that results in abolished dreaming. More focal lesions, or like controlled, restricted uh, lesions, can result in more intensified, more vivid dreams. And these are the kinds of experiments that gets like systems or, or like circuit neuroscientists excited, because it suggests that certain subnuclei within this brain region are excitatory for the phenomenon, while other subnuclei may, uh, within this structure may be inhibitory. Anyways, if we combine this research with other types of experiments using like neuroimaging, like fMRI for example, Domhoff and Fox last year argued that we begin to see a picture of particular brain structures being highly activated uniquely during dreaming. So they are arguing that activation of these structures is what causes us to dream. Yeah, sort of. More that the picture of activity that emerges explains in a sort of piecemeal kind of way what's going on during dreaming. So for example, activity in an area called the lingual gyrus may explain the fabrication of visual imagery or activity in the basal ganglia may support the perception of our body moving, or even the movement itself. And such significant involvement of prefrontal structures in driving REM activity may explain why dreams tend to involve concerns about social relationships, rumination over the past, and aversive concern or anxiety over the future. Yep, that pretty much summarizes all the things that I dream about. <laughs> <laughs> And whenever you bring up the whole social interaction aspect to dreaming, I always think about my college roommate who'd constantly talk in her sleep. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody does at least every now and then. And in fact, there was one study that was super cool involving speech. Researchers had participants basically plug all of their senses, right? They wore eye shades, sound eliminating earplugs, and then fell asleep. But anyways, the brains of participants couldn't hear anything and the researchers had them actually verbalize as they fell asleep. So they were talking while falling asleep. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I kind of wish there were like videos of this study because evidently people could continue speaking while they were falling asleep, like describing visual imagery during their descent. Yeah, that must have been pretty strange to observe. This kind of brings up a related topic that people always ask you. What's the deal with sleepwalking? Right, well, there are sort of different types of sleepwalking distinguished by symptoms. There's just like straight up sleepwalking where someone is up and active while still asleep. But when you awaken them, they're totally confused as to what's going on. And then there's REM sleep behavioral disorder or RBD. When you wake these folks up, it tends to be much easier and they're typically pretty cognizant of the dream that they were just having. Do we know what causes these activities while sleeping? It's an area of continuing debate. The sort of classic perspective is that there's dysfunction in the atonia producing activity of the brainstem. And so this basically results in the invasion of motor activity occurring in the circuitry we discussed before, like the motor cortex, into the output of the brain to the body. In other words, areas of the brainstem that typically filter and prevent movement signals from getting out to the body are disrupted, allowing movement signals to reach the muscles they'd activate without that filter. And some very simple and short movements do get through, right? Like, like little jerky twitches. We all do that. But by and large, we remain motionless while asleep because of this muscle-relaxing activity in the brainstem. Seems pretty reasonable and intuitive, which makes me feel like you don't buy it. Right. Uh, <laughs> so there's another school of thought that's arisen that suggests that it may not be quite that simple, at least in the case of REM sleep behavior disorder, that it may not involve the motor cortex at all. It turns out that if you stimulate some brainstem structures independently of the motor cortex, you can get fairly complex behaviors, 
like defensive and aggressive behaviors in rats and monkeys that are kind of similar to the motor behaviors we see in people that are active while sleeping. Well, I've definitely seen people twitch a bit in their sleep, so that's normal, right? Yeah, for sure. There seems to be something different going on with REM sleep behavior disorder. While very few people with this condition even exhibit the rather complex systems of movement, there are some that do. And so I'll tweet out a video of a guy lying on a bed and sort of like very gracefully and casually flicking the ash from what appears to be a cigarette, bringing it to his lips pinched between two fingers, just as he would when smoking while awake. But he's actually asleep. Yeah, it's actually really amazing to watch. You totally think that he's awake and there's a cigarette in his hand. Right? And some scientists argue that these types of coordinated behaviors require more than just an outflow of motor activity from the motor cortex. Rather, there's some interpretation of incoming sensory information from the moving limbs to be able to move so gracefully. And there's a large body of literature dating back to just before the 60s, suggesting that all that's needed for like normal looking twitches during sleep to occur is a brainstem. And remember how we talked about the idea that REM brain activity may be critical to orchestrating the development of the brain? Well, there's a theory described by Blumberg and Plumel uh, last year, and I apologize if I mispronounced uh, the name if I did, uh, that these little twitches emerging from the brainstem are necessary for the development of intricate relationships between self-produced movements versus externally produced movements. Meaning your ability to determine if you're moving your own arm versus if someone else is moving it. Like, stop hitting yourself. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, and, and so... Um, Sleepwalking and REM behavior disorder may just be pathology of this very important activity. Rather than little motor outputs, people exhibit major motor outputs from the brainstem, resulting in the strange behaviors that some people will exhibit. So it's just the brain mistakenly causing the body to move much more than it normally would because the activity is necessary for the brain to learn how to properly move the body's muscles. Yeah, that's kind of a fair way to put this theory. Just like with REM sleep having various brain structures effectively networked together, these little motor twitches may be critical to the brain integrating sensory information that the body delivers to the brain with motor output that the brain sends out to the body. Just how dreams, well, one theory is that helping you learn and synthesize this information and connect it to everything else that's happening to you. Sleepwalking is like doing the same thing, but for motor movements, like you're learning just how to move. Sort of. I mean, it's not that, you know, it's not like it's a healthy thing necessarily. It's just sort of like a slight disruption of a similar kind of process where REM sleep is helping to orchestrate everything to be connected properly, right, through activity because some connections require activity to be effectively connected. Um, these like little twitches that people will exhibit while sleeping, it's a similar kind of process where the brain needs to form physical connections, you know, synaptic connections between, you know, motor output and sensory input, right? Okay. Okay. So, but sometimes these movements can be small, right? Yeah. Most of the time, right. almost always, right? But sometimes people that those little twitches for one reason or another, pathologically become way exaggerated. Right. Like people can climb over things. Exactly. They can, you know, well, they can do physical things that they would never do while awake. Right. And so, and so the, this group is arguing that it's probably due to some subtle disruption in that filter that typically relaxes muscles. It's just not effective enough for one reason or, or another. And it's not just like way more motor cortex activity, which is what a lot of people argue, but it's probably just a disruption in the uh, muscle relaxation activity in the brainstem. It prevents 
the enactment of dreams. But could it also be like, you know, like you said, like the brain is trying to make all these connections, right? And the brain is like, oh, you know what? I don't have a strong enough connection for climbing this bookshelf. Right. You know, I need to do that. <laughs> and therefore, right. you know, in the sleep, the kid climbs the bookshelf. Right. So, I mean, keep in mind that it's all automatic, right? The brain isn't like, I need to be able to fire, you know, a crossbow more effectively. So let's rehearse firing a crossbow. It's just like automatic output from the brainstem, right? It's just like waves of activity that um, typically... You know, if there wasn't this muscle relaxation activity in the brainstem, um, you would be moving, right? It would just be like automatic body movements, right? But because the, the brainstem is usually relaxing the body, it's just little twitches, right? So the waves of activity can occur in the brain, but the implications of that, that, that activity don't reach the body. So how about this? Okay. If we could move during dreaming, mm -hmm we're basically doing an interpretive dance of whatever we're dreaming. <laughs> That's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, like, kind of. Like, you're sort of interpreting this automatic output of the brainstem. Yeah, kind of. And I mean, you know, frankly, I mean, this isn't that thoroughly understood. That's one way to, to explain it. But, but it, it's really just a byproduct of, you know, automatic synaptic connectivity. You know, there's activity generated in the brainstem and it cycles through the brain. And if we were awake, that activity would result in the various movements that, that we exhibit. But because we have this internally generated reality from this act automatic activity, and there's a filter, right, in the brainstem, we don't end up acting all, acting them all out. We just get these subtle little motor twitches. Right, right. right. I think it's just amazing how the movements can be so complex, like the smoking yeah. and you know, actually climbing or, you know, doing mm -hmm. some very complex, you know, motor activity, engaging all these muscles. For sure. And, and that was one of the reasons that scientists argued that it must require the motor cortex for all of these complicated behaviors to occur because they are so complicated. But there are some, some experiments that show that if you stimulate areas of the brainstem, you will get a cat to like strike out at prey that isn't there, like hunting prey, basically. Right? These are like complicated, graceful movements, mm -hmm. not just like a, a leg twitching, you know, mm -hmm. and that's all brainstem. That's no motor cortex. Um, mm. So, so yeah, it's, it, you know, th these are just sort of like competing theories to explain what's going on with both just the subtle, you know, tiny little jerky motions and REM sleep behavioral disorder. Very cool. Okay. <laughs> so what about lucid dreaming? This is definitely one of those common topics that people always want to know about. Is there research on lucid dreaming? For sure, but it's not very easy to study. So first, let's define exactly what we're talking about. The best definition I found is from a paper by Stumbreeze and Erlacher, and again, you'll have to forgive me if I mispronounced those names, uh, in 2012. The dreamer is aware of the fact that they're dreaming, can influence the dream content, and it's not all or nothing. Rather, it's a continuum with different degrees, which means that some dreams can be more lucid than others. Sounds about right to me. Pretty similar to what you said Aristotle wrote back in the day in the last episode. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so I imagine there's pretty specific differences in brain activation during lucid dreaming compared to normal dreaming. Yes, it looks like it. Again, there's kind of a word salad quality to just like listing brain structures, but we're talking about elevated activity above and beyond what's typically observed during dreaming in frontolateral structures like the precuneus, the cuneus, 
the parietal lobules, the prefrontal, and occipitotemporal cortices. So overall, there are definitely changes in brain areas that are observed when someone is lucid dreaming. For sure. It's absolutely a distinct dreaming state. And it's fairly rare, though it happens to about half of the population at least once. And only 20% of people, or, you know, around 20% of people will experience a lucid dream more regularly, like once a month. Younger people seem to have them more frequently, and there do actually seem to be cultural differences in frequencies, which is kind of surprising to me. Uh, Erlacher, Shreddle, <laughs> uh, Watanabe, Yamana, or Yamana, <laughs> and Ganzard, uh, and again, you gotta, I have to apologize. <laughs> I know I'm not pronouncing this right, but this group found in 2008 that there are significantly lower incidences of lucid dreaming among Japanese students compared to students of other countries. How strange. Yeah, and I haven't thoroughly walked through the data there, and as always, correlation doesn't equal causation, but they essentially argue that architectural differences translate to differences in the likelihood of lucid dreaming. Okay, well I think the implied question behind asking what lucid dreaming is, is can I learn how to do it? Is there evidence to support people learning how to lucid dream? There actually is some evidence, uh, yes. But this research is sort of disparate and inconsistent. And again, that same group wrote a pretty thorough exploration of the topic in 2012, which I absolutely recommend to anybody looking for a really deep dive into this topic. Yeah, I can imagine there's a fair bit to talk about, given that the topic itself dates back to Aristotle. <laughs> right, for sure. Okay, so lay it on me. What are some of the techniques? Well, Stumbreeze and Friends <laughs> break down the very many strategies into several classes. There are cognitive techniques, external stimulation, and then like a group that they call miscellaneous. Cognitive techniques are ones that involve things like pre-sleep training techniques, like uh, hypnagogic techniques, and then uh, intentional sleeping right? You know, the intention of having a lucid dream before sleeping. External stimulation techniques involve using sound, light, vibration, and even like electrical techniques during the REM phase of sleep to try and generate a cue to the sleeper that they are asleep, that they're dreaming, and ready to get lucid. And then there are a bunch of other things, like the most significant of which, at least that they covered, seem to be the use of substances to try and alter neurochemistry in such a way as to predispose the brain to dream lucidly, right, while asleep. Wow. So it sounds like people have definitely tried a lot of different ways to wake up to the fact that they're dreaming. Yeah, for sure. And are any of them really effective? Well, this group reviewed a ton of studies for these techniques. And the most promising method uh, or methods that they identified is uh, a method called Tholi's or Tholi's combined technique, as well as another one called the mild technique. Okay, so what's going on with Tholi's combined technique? Yeah, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but, but it basically revolves around training yourself to develop what they call a reflective state of mind. And basically, like, like you're rehearsing a dream. It sounds uh, like you're basically practicing a mindset and explicitly suggesting to yourself that you're going to have a lucid dream while falling asleep. And I'm sure there are like a ton of devotees of this technique that it scoff at how simple I make it sound. So I apologize to them for that. <laughs> but that's what the technique seems to boil down to. So if dreams are like the brain rehearsing, you're actually kind of rehearsing in your waking time. <laughs> you're like rehearsing for a rehearsal. <laughs> right, yeah, kind of, I guess so. <laughs> and what is the mild technique? From my reading, this seems pretty similar. It's rehearsing a specific dream before falling asleep and then literally visualizing becoming lucid while focusing on the intention to remember that you're dreaming. And there's some data to suggest that this technique might be more effective in the early morning hours like particularly after 30 to 120 minutes following a period of wakefulness. So you'd have to sleep through the night, wake up in the morning, do a bit of mild meditation, 
and then take a half hour to two hour nap? Yeah, that's what it seems like. And these will definitely increase the likelihood of a lucid dream? There are some studies that suggest that they can. And there are some groups that explore the combination of these techniques with others, like using light stimuli during REM sleep, for example. But the efficacy of these external cues hasn't been very clearly demonstrated. And what about electrical stimulation? Right. This was and is a subject that arouses significant skepticism in me. Uh, I wanted to find a reasonably recent example of a study using this technique and found a study with pretty reasonable sample sizes of participants, study participants, and it was done in 2014, published in Nature Neuroscience, and our old friend Alan Hobson is included as an author, uh, with Ursula Voss as the lead author. The group found that applying 40 hertz stimulation, basically meaning like an on signal 40 times a second, via transcranial alternating current stimulation at frontotemporal regions of, of the head, basically, for 30 seconds during REM sleep, was capable of inducing lucid dreaming. So people were awakened five to 10 seconds following this stimulation. And they found that two thirds of people at this particular stimulation frequency reported having lucid dreams. So people had electrodes strapped to the, like the front side of their head and they had this particular stimulation applied for 30 seconds while in REM sleep and were awakened by the researchers about 10 seconds after the stimulation and over half the people reported lucid dreams? That's what the study found. And they even found that a lower frequency, 25 hertz, meaning like 25 on signals a second, induced increased lucid dreams in about one third of people at the treatment group. That's pretty cool. So it's like frequency dependent. So do they try to go up even higher? They did, uh, but, but it seemed that 40 hertz was their Goldilocks zone. So like going higher didn't uh, confer more lucid dreaming necessarily. It just fried your brain. <laughs> right, it just cooked your frontal lobes. <laughs> but it's important to keep in mind that this is just one study. This doesn't mean that strapping a cap of electrodes to your temples to deliver 40 hertz will get you to lucid dream. It's just one set of data suggesting that lucidity while dreaming is due to particular kind of brain activity and that it may be inducible by various means. It's also kind of over the top to you know, shock yourself with electricity, <laughs> even if it's a you know, very mild you know, signaling just, right. just to get to lucid dream. <laughs> yeah, well keep in mind, I mean, this is not the kind of electricity that you would feel, right? This is not shocking. You know, it's just, it's very, very subtle. And, and you know, one compelling aspect to the study is that the sham treatment group, in other words, a group that didn't really receive any of this transcranial uh, stimulation, they, zero people had lucid dreams. So, and, and you know, we're talking about sample sizes at each treatment group of around 30 to 35 people. So, I mean, you know, it, it was a reasonably big study for this topic. Um, and, you know, it's published in Nature Neuroscience, so enough <laughs> of their peers found it to be valid uh, to be published in a pretty prestigious journal. Um, so, you know, it, it, it is still just one study, but it's, you know, solid data. Okay, and some people use drugs to try to promote lucid dreaming. Right, and it seems like most people tend to focus on drugs that revolve around altering the cholinergic or acetylcholine signaling system. Would I have heard of any of these drugs? Like, are we talking about weed or alcohol or cigarettes? Well, when it comes to sort of like formal lucid dreaming research, the substances that are typically studies aren't ones that, with which you're, you're likely familiar. We're talking about like donepezil, DMAE, rivastigmine, galantamine, and huperzine. Yep, you're right, totally foreign to me. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's the case for most people. Unless you're prescribed dinepazil or rivastigmine for Alzheimer's disease. These are Alzheimer's disease drugs? Yeah, 
So, so one of the strategies to help people experiencing the cognitive decline associated with Alzheimer's disease is to boost acetylcholine levels through the use of substances that basically slow down the breakdown of acetylcholine called like acetylcholine esterase inhibitors. That's just one strategy. Acetylcholine esterase is the thing that breaks down acetylcholine? Yeah, that's nicely done. That's right. And, and I've actually had a bit of, uh, of an experience with an acetylcholine esterase inhibitor, huperzine. Uh, why? <laughs> okay, well, so without going too far off topic, I'd been trying out various supplements while trying to finish up both sections of organic chemistry as quickly as possible in college. It ended up being one of my favorite series of courses by far, but I think most people would agree that it's not exactly the easiest stuff to learn in the world, particularly when you have almost zero background in science. So you were taking Alzheimer's medications to try and learn organic chemistry? Brilliant. <laughs> not exactly. So Hooperzine is in a class of supplements that are informally referred to as nootropics, a topic that we'll definitely discuss in the future, about which I'm considerably more skeptical than I was at the time. Yeah, people ask you about nootropics all the time. Right. Uh, so, so yeah, so I was trying out things that had been shown to be largely harmless. And so one day, I took a small dose of Huberzine before studying in my room, but I ended up lying down for a bit, for about like 20, 15 to 20 minutes after taking it uh, for a short nap. I'd recently learned about the effects of napping on memory retention, you see. Sure. It wasn't that you were just a sleep-deprived college student. <laughs> yeah, maybe a bit of both. Uh, anyways, uh, I began drifting towards sleep, but I ended up having the strangest experience. While still asleep, I dreamt that I woke up in my room, just as I'd left it. I raised my head from my pillow and looked around my room. I saw my bookcase, my computer, my book and notebook on my desk but I knew that I wasn't really awake because I couldn't really move exactly as I wanted to. So it was sort of like a diet lucid dream. The detail was amazing though. I was clearly observing my mind's reconstruction of my room, with which I was of course very familiar at the time, right? It was my room, I lived there. Eventually I woke up and confirmed that I'd been asleep. It was a really strange experience. So how do you know you're not still sleeping? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that sounds, uh pretty safe, pretty mundane for uh, a lucid dream. So why didn't you just decide to start flying? I know, right? I think I was just so taken aback by how detailed my vision was, despite the fact that I knew my eyes were closed. Could it also be that you're actually interpreting your, I guess, memory or vision to be accurate, even though it wasn't actually accurate? You're just thinking like, Oh, I'm looking at this, and this is so accurate. Yeah, that's a super interesting topic. Like, the, the sensation of accuracy, right, versus, you know, true accuracy. I mean, you know, fr frankly, it's, it's impossible for me to distinguish, right? But the experience that I was having in that moment was, this is an accurate depiction of my room. And, I, you know, I would, I would look at my blanket on top of me, and I was like, wow, this is exactly how I remember it looked right before I started nodding off, you know? And so, yeah, I, I couldn't tell you for sure, but... That was experience. But when I read uh, Blumberg and Plumau suggest that part of dreaming and dream enactment, uh, like sleepwalking, involves both sensory input and motor output to and from the brain, this experience totally came to mind. My dream at the time was limited by the fact that my brain was sending these motor signals to get up and do more than just look around. But because my sensory signals didn't match with these motor commands, my dream couldn't really evolve accordingly. And of course, you know, this is my interpretation of past experiences. It's just that. It's just an interpretation. Uh, but their description sure strikes me as accurate. So have you ever had any, like, lucid dream experiences? Yeah, I had one very lucid dream. And it was the stereotypical flying dream. Oh, cool. But I was basically in a city. 
And I was just flying up and around the buildings and it was so cool. Very cool. And so what was the detail like? Like, were you looking at windows and seeing people in, in the windows or? No, I think I was really focused on the sensation of flying. I could mm. control where I was going and I could feel the G-forces as I, mm. uh, I guess, changed directions. And uh, it was nighttime in the city as well. And it was very much, I don't know, like a, like, like a Spider-Man movie. You know how mm. all the action takes place at night and he's web-slinging through the buildings. But in this case, you know, I didn't have webs i was just flying yeah very cool okay so before we started recording you were telling me about a group that's actually trying to set up a technology to record our dreams yeah i know it's pretty wild huh? so i know of at least one group at uh, berkeley in california headed by uh, a principal investigator named jack gallant working on combining fmri and eeg data to basically construct movies of our dreams the group collaborates with various labs some of which are at uh, the university of texas at austin and even nasa to decipher the electrical activity in the brain and body to eventually reconstruct the experience of the dreamer. And this is actually much harder than it might sound because at the risk of sounding like a broken record, all of perception, cognition, and behavior is the result of circuits of collaborating brain regions influencing each other's activity and not just the byproduct of the activity of isolated brain structures. Right, so you need to decode the activities of multiple parts of the brain. But why the body? Yeah, it's like an interesting feature that I think this group has kind of stumbled on. When you're talking to someone in a dream, the group argues that subvocal activations of like voice producing regions of the throat can be measured. So it's like a silent version of your conversation expressed electrically in your throat. Yeah, so that's kind of like you your brain is sending signals for you to move muscles, but all those muscles are relaxed and essentially paralyzed, so the same thing can apply to your vocal cords. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, and it's still very early days for this. The implications are massive. Because if we can learn how to do this, we will have essentially learned to decipher brain activity. You can read minds. <laughs> exactly. Imagine having this kind of technology available if a loved one was severely injured in a car accident. They're totally immobile and appear completely inactive, but there's still some neurological activity. It's not entirely unreasonable to suggest that this kind of technology might yield access to their state of mind. It might let you communicate with them. I can also see how this technology used to record can then be also used for playback. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's like a more perfect memory. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. But it's also equally scary. At its most sophisticated level, this same technology could yield more invasive access to your state of mind. No true lie detector exists today. But with the more perfected neuroscience required for a true reconstruction of a dream experience to be possible, it's not unreasonable to suggest that a true lie detector could be produced. The ultimate extrapolation of this would be the end of a private experience. Ooh, so it's like, not only someday could big brothers see what you're doing physically, but they can see what you're thinking. That's exactly right. And I wouldn't worry too much. This dystopian or utopian future won't hit us for a pretty long time. At this point, you still have to try and fall asleep in a noisy fMRI machine. And even then, our ability to decipher brain activity is pretty rudimentary. I, uh, I'm gonna tweet out a video of the latest example of deciphering brain activity into a movie. And you'll see that while it's amazing how accurate it is, it's still far from perfected. I guess that's sort of comforting. <laughs> right. But regardless, dreams are still an area of ongoing research because it involves many types of neurosciences, sensory perception, cognition, memory, development, and things like imagination and creativity. It's going to be an area of ongoing research for years to come, but given the resources available to neuroscientists today, it's going to be a fun area to watch as it continues to develop. 